Let's join in prayer. Gracious Father, our Heavenly Father, we pray that your blessing would be upon us. As we turn again to your word, it's a rather odd section of your word, but there are truths there for us. Help us to grasp them. Help us to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as we do so. For his sake we pray. Amen. There's a certain amount of truth in the fact that one of the ways of getting to know a person is to see their house. Of course, there are other ways of getting to know someone and this is not the only way, but there's some value in that idea. By seeing a person's house, you might learn quite a lot about them, whether they like art, for example, among any many other possible conclusions you could reach. Now, to an extent, this holds true not only with people but also with God. And lest you say to me that God doesn't have a house to inspect, of course, you're right. He doesn't, but he did. In our studies so far through 1 Kings, we've seen many things. We've seen Solomon rise to the throne. We've seen Solomon blessed with abundant wisdom. And in these last few chapters, we've also seen the beginnings of the most ambitious building project ever undertaken, building a house for God, the temple. And this is where the principle holds true. God's house, the temple, tells us about God. Now, in thinking about the temple so far, we've noted the building materials, and the architectural plan. But this morning we move from the exterior parts of the temple to turn our attention to the interior. And surprise, surprise, the interior aspects of the temple direct our attention to some things we need to know about God because they reveal him to us. Now you might say, yes, that's true, But with the temple long gone, what value is that? Yes, that's also true. What value is there in that? But I'd say this, that because God never changes, because he is the same yesterday, today and forever, whatever it is we learn about God in relation to the temple, well, it still applies. Truth we learn about God is always a constant. It doesn't alter because God doesn't change and therefore it always remains of relevance to us. Let's look through the temple this morning. Let's see what it is we learn about the one who would inhabit this building and fill it with his glory. First, I want you to note from these verses that the interior of the temple reflects something about God's perspective on beauty. God's perspective on beauty. Verse 14 announces that Solomon finished the temple and verse 15, the following, give the details of the interior that he began to decorate. The first of those details is that the king covered the whole interior with wood 
so that no stone was seen. And this wood was not left bare but engraved. So verse 18 tells us the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. And if that were not beautiful enough, every other surface was covered in gold, including the inner sanctuary. Now why all this decoration? Why not just plain and simple? Well, in the first place, there's a theological significance in making the inside of the temple full of engravings of flowers and gourds and objects of nature. The temple is a mini garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden. They lost the benefit of God's presence. But the temple would signify God being with his people again and so reflected something of the garden of those days, those Eden days, when God and man could be found together. Now this was not a full restoration of fellowship because we also know that the reminder of Adam and Eve's sin and therefore the necessity of sacrifice was always visible but it was a partial restoration being communicated through these designs. So too the engravings of angels. They are a reminder to any visitor that you are in God's royal court and among his servants. Now, given that none of us have ever seen the temple, and that we never will, that is Solomon's temple, because it's long been destroyed, for me to tell you that it was a great place of great beauty is simply something you'll have to believe. I can't prove it to you, and you can't check it out if it's a matter of personal taste, as I might think it beautiful, but you have a different opinion. It shouldn't come as a surprise to you that God should and will and design something beautiful for the place he is to be worshipped because ultimately all beauty comes from him. The difficulty we face now is that once you remove God from the perspective of modern culture, which is something we all live with and in, that culture redefines beauty in its own image. Think about these virtues and how present-day philosophies think about them. Think about truth, beauty, goodness, love, holiness. These things are being denied as objective norms and recast as subjective things depending on your taste. Any idea that is above us all and defines us all and to which we all must subscribe is no longer feasible in the mind of modern man. And beauty is included in that. The expression, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, is a classic symptom of this truth. Beauty becomes subject to personal preference and in the absence of God has been redefined and lost and has become in itself something of a God that cannot satisfy. The original purpose of beauty is gone, and it's become more and less, less and less than God intended. 
God made beauty as a gift and sign of his generosity. God made beauty to point to him. Every heart is searching for beauty. Not every heart finds it. Some have found things that they think are beauty, but they're only tokens of the one who is beautiful, and that's himself. Calvin began his famous institute stating that we cannot know ourselves apart from a knowledge of God. And so it is also with beauty. God comes before beauty to define it by himself. True beauty always has reference to him. It's not a category that pre-existed before God, by which God is now defined. Beauty derives its definition and boundaries from God, not the other way around. To claim anything as beautiful is to claim that it has a positive relationship to the source of beauty and therefore to God. Knowing this will debunk some more modern categories of beauty and deepen our appreciation of beauty and also define for us what is not beautiful. So to call something beautiful when it has no bearing to God at all or in fact goes against his will and does not reflect his beauty is nothing short of an insult to him who has given us beauty that in turn we might praise him and do his will. Either way, this temple of which we are thinking and is so described in these verses could be nothing else but a reflection of the one who is beauty himself. Secondly, the interior of the temple would reflect something about God's expression of glory. No Israelites, apart from the priests, would be able to enter the temple and no priest but the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and that once a year. For this reason, 1 Kings 6 would have been of great fascination to any Israelite. Never seeing it with their own eyes, they would hang on the verbal descriptions of what's written here. Recognising the importance of the house and how each part had significance, the Israelite could ponder each part to gain more information about the God they worshipped they would have picked up on the fact that more attention was paid to the interior than to the exterior. And in that interior, apart from flowers and wood, there was, of course, gold. Gold everywhere. Eleven times gold is mentioned. The inner sanctuary, the nave and the entrance covered in gold. The cherubim and the doors were covered in gold. Imagine this, even the floor was gold. If you were to walk into this temple, you would not be able to miss this. The impressions of walking into a room of golden mirror surfaces would have felt like walking into a room blazing with light. Everything would be coloured by the light reflecting off the gold. And what else can that be but a picture of the glory of God? Just as the carved flowers and the trees 
and the statues of cherubim were representations of spiritual realities. So this gold was representative of his glory, heightening the notion of being in his very presence, the presence of a glorious God, the God of glory. What is the glory of God? In short, it's the manifestation or the revelation of God's absolute and complete perfection. The scriptures tell us about it in various places of this glory, that the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19, that Isaiah saw the glory of God in his vision of the heavenly temple in Isaiah 6. And in particular, the greatest manifestation of the glory of God is seen in Jesus himself, according to John chapter 1. So the gold of the temple was not a manifestation of God's glory itself, but a visual reminder of it. Think of it as a visual aid to help us remember what we cannot see, what's invisible. And why gold? Well, it's not only precious and valuable, but it also doesn't tarnish, making it a fitting building material. The fact that it's expensive and is lavishly used to cover the whole of the interior would be a reminder of the generosity that we ought to show in our own love and our worship for God. But let's stress that although it would have been excessive for any one of us to have our own homes covered in gold, earth's best is still insufficient to pay true respect to the fullness of the glory of God. Solomon's extravagance in using gold doesn't do justice to the true glory of God. If every created creature brought all of themselves in constant worship and service, it would still not be enough to do justice to the infinite majesty of God. These days, of course, since the Spirit at Pentecost came, it's not our call to communicate the glory of God through architecture. We would never be able to have a building big and luxurious enough to do God's glory justice. And instead of gold trim, what is it that the New Testament calls us to? Isn't it good deeds? Isn't that what glorifies God? Uh, Today we glorify God through the building of the temple of the church, of his people, and beautifying it with good deeds and holiness. Not gold trim. One more thing about gold. Let me point you to another place, a future place. One where the garden gets a complete overhaul and is developed to become a city. It too is a place where God and man dwell in perfect fellowship. There are trees and rivers there. There are streets made of gold there. 
But there is another aspect I think the gold of the temple is pointing to. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 23 we read, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Third, and probably most obviously, the interior of the temple reflects something about God's character as holy. God's character as holy. This word holiness can mean one of two things. It can mean moral purity, highlighting the idea that God is perfect in every way, or it can have it behind the idea of separation, being set apart. And by virtue of who God is, being morally pure, and by virtue of who we are, God's moral purity necessarily results in a separation from sinners. This separation began when Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. An angel was posted at the gate with a fiery sword promising death if they attempted to come back in. This separation speaks to us of his moral purity and of our sinfulness and the condemnation that all humanity is subject to. I think this explains one of the great questions in an unbeliever's mind. Why can't I find God and walk with God like Adam and Eve once did? The answer is because if he allowed you into his direct presence as a sinner, you would die. His inaccessibility to the sinner is a message of our standing before him. We can't knock on our door, on his door. We can't think our way through a series of meditations. We can't push ourselves into his presence by willing us. He keeps us at a distance for our good. The temple then is incredibly significant as a holy God comes to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. It speaks of God drawing near, but it speaks of us being separated from him. See that in the interior, represented in verses 23 to 26. The description moves from the most inaccessible part of the temple to the most inaccessible part of the temple, to the holy of holies where a single high priest could go once a year and then to the exterior doors through which not even all the priests could come. All these interior spaces would not be seen by the majority of the people of Israel, but only by those who had been set apart as representatives to do a task. These priests who originally should have been the firstborn of each tribe, but became the tribe of Levi when the the Levites joined Moses in punishing Israel in her idolatry. These were not singled out for special treatment and everyone else left out. These priests represented the rest of the people of Israel. 
These priests served in God's presence on Israel's behalf. And when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he did it with 12 stones on his breastplate, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel as a whole could not go in there, but only those washed and sanctified through substitute and sacrifice. The different rooms denying access to an increasing amount of people puts the people at a distance from God. The doors. What's the purpose of a door? Well, it's to let people in or to keep people out. Doors can be opened in welcome and they can be locked in rejection. The doors of the temple did both. They let in a select few. They kept out the rest. Note that the doors to the innermost room had chains covered in gold added to bar the way. This sheds some light on the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, verses 7 to 9. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. See, Jesus is the door that leads us into the presence of God. His body is the rent curtain which gives anyone who believes access to the holy God. God is at a distance. From all sinners, God has drawn near in Christ and in what Jesus has done for us, he brings us into God's presence. He forgives us, cleansing us from all sin. He clothes us in the robes of his righteousness. Through Christ, fellowship is restored. Just as Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then there are angels. They too emphasise the holiness of God. It was an angel who wielded the fiery sword which prevented Adam and Eve from entering the garden. It was the angel of the Lord who killed the firstborn who were not safe under the blood of the Passover lamb. And then there's the holy of holies itself. The description of the Holy of Holies is particularly impressive. We're given a description of the angels standing guard over the ark of God's presence, the inner sanctum, nine metres wide. These two cherubim with their wings extended were four and a half metres wide. Their wings touched the outer walls and touched the wings of the other cherubim in the middle of the room. When you walked into the room, you'd be confronted with Two cherubim, four and a half metres high, four and a half metres wide, looming over you. You'd be struck by how big they are and remember what they were sent to do, to keep sinners away from the presence of God for their own good. And you could add that they stress to us the holiness of God by their worship 
and when we sing songs praising the holy God like we did this morning, we do so like these heavenly-looking beings. So this is the temple of God as described in this second half of the sixth chapter. And if we were to walk in it, into it, which I know we can't, what might we have learned about the God who inspired it? Well, he's a God of beauty. He's a God of glory. He's a God of holiness. These three things, beauty, glory and holiness, are more perfectly expressed now in the gospel than by the temple. Think on the beauty of God and him making us new creatures and beautiful in Christ. Think on the glory of God and him bestowing glory on us when we're joined to Christ. Think on the holiness of God and think how we are made holy, declared to be holy through Christ. Think on that and see the display of God's beauty, glory and holiness even more sharply than you would have if you'd been in a building. These are things that a building can never convey. And yet there's more, isn't there? There's another place where we see the beauty, the glory and the holiness of God. You guessed it. It's at a very ugly place. It's at the cross. As far removed from a physical building that you could imagine. Just two pieces of wood. No gold. No flowers. No engravings, but a sign that says the King of the Jews. A scene that we would call ugly, horrific, cruel, torturous, something to be despised and hated, rejected. But there it is that the fullness of the beauty, the glory and the holiness of God is seen. No longer in buildings, but in the gift of God. Paul says, Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is the God we worship. No longer one whose glory is seen in a temple of gold and wood. But one who gave his son over to death so that all that the temple represents of God and man separated through sacrifice but brought together might become a reality in 
you who believe. What a God we serve. Amazing, wonderful. Let's praise him. We give you thanks, Heavenly Father. We thank you for all that's been written in your word, even the temple itself. So much detail given to us. And yet we see a greater fulfilment of all that it prefigured in the cross of your dear Son. Thank you that you brought heaven and earth together. Thank you that there you brought love and justice together. Thank you that there we find the greatest expression of your character. Thank you that there we have forgiveness of sins and we who are not welcome find a door that is open and one who says, I am the way. Come to the Father through me. We pray that we all might put our hope and trust in him for there is no other way We cannot barge our way into your presence. We cannot earn your way into your presence. But we can come and receive what we do not deserve. We thank you for your wonderful grace. We thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel message. We pray this that we might ever call upon you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.